Do you have to choose between being right or being helpful? Choose helpful. Being right and winning, but it doesn't actually help the person move forward or make better decisions. Like, what did you actually accomplish? You know, so yeah, we had a, we got to the truth and no one was any better for it. This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers. And together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, diet debates, part three. In part one of this series, we covered what is perhaps the biggest diet debate of the decade, plants versus animals for human health and possible ways to reconcile the two. In part two, we covered plants versus animals for environmental health and the ideal macronutrient split, looking for common ground among these also. And here in part three, we'll cover a new concept called agnostic healthy eating that offers a refreshing way to think about good nutrition without adding more dogma to the menu. It's agnostic healthy eating. It's a term I came up with. This is Matt Fitzgerald, a high-level endurance athlete, a coach, and an award-winning author. He's written more than 20 books, including Diet Cults, which is the book I wanted to talk to him about today. And here's how I, I, I came at this. You know, as, you know, as part of my work, I'm, I'm telling athletes what to eat. And anyone who's in a position of telling other people what to eat, and you know this very well, gets a lot of blowback uh, from, you know, there, there's competing opinions out there. So, I mean, you really believe that you have good advice to give to the person you're, you're telling what to eat, but that person, you know, assuming they don't live in a closet in your home is being ex exposed to a lot of other, you know, diet information, like in books, on websites, from, you know, people they meet. Um, and a lot of it is contrary to what you're saying. And, and I've had this experience all the time where I, I feel like, folks, this is really basic. Like this, you should be persuaded by what I'm telling you, but they'll come back to me with, no, you know, someone told me I should only eat things that start with the letter M, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I just got frustrated by, by that. And I decided at some point to, to kind of do something about it, to sort of like take the discussion to a meta level. So instead of just like chipping away, trying to persuade people that I'm giving them good advice on how to eat, to sort of step back and ask the question, you know, ask and attempt to answer the question, like, why are people so irrational <laughs> when it comes to thinking about food? Like, why is it so hard to get people to buy into and act upon good sound advice uh, with diet? And I felt like one of the reasons I, I was fighting a losing battle is that, um, you know, the named diets, uh, they have a shtick. I mean, first of all, they've got a name. So I, I didn't want to sort of um, become the very folks I was, you know, competing against. Right. <laughs> so I gave my diet the most boring possible right. name. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Stuck to my principles. <laughs> I, I only halfway sold out. I do have a positive agenda in the book. I, I'm not just, you know, pulling back the curtain and exposing, you know, the diet cults for what they are. And so that the positive agenda is I, I want to offer an alternative for people 
like me, even before I knew the first thing about nutrition, I was turned off by all of the fad diets. You know, I just smelled a rat, you know, it didn't matter like what the substance was. It was just, you know, the carnival barker way in which they were like marketed to me. I'm like, I don't care what you're selling, dude. <laughs> like, I, I don't like the act. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of other people like me, like they, it's not anything goes, they care about their health and or fitness. Um, they want to eat in a healthy, sustainable way, but they are turned off by, by the fads. Um, so that's what I'm offering as an alternative with, you know, my agnostic healthy eating. Just what I'm trying to do is add some sizzle to it to like, to, to give it some of the sex appeal of a fad diet without shifting it uh, off of its, you know, scientific foundation. Um, and also, you know, also practical foundation. I wanted to know the main criteria for this idea of agnostic healthy eating, and this is what Matt told me. The distinction that uh, I do pay attention to is processed versus unprocessed. I mean, that. so, I mean, I may consider or at least be aware of whether something I choose to eat is high carb or comes from an animal versus a plant source. <laughs> like, but that's not the basis of my decision. But beyond that distinction, which we've talked about a lot in this series, Matt says that individual preferences matter most. One of the ways I, I, I try to help people get perspective on what's wrong with the fad diets is I explain to them, here's what will happen if you go into the office of like a fad diet proponent. They will give you the diet without asking you anything about what you currently eat or why. And they'll say, good luck with it. It's one size fits all. Like, that is the polar opposite of what I do. Like I talk to, I, I don't talk a lot about like my philosophy. I talk to them about what they eat now, because what I want to do is change as little as possible because presumably they eat the way they do now for a reason. So my only goal is to help them get the results they want with, you know, in the straightest line that we can come up with. Um, so don't change anything you don't need to change. So there's like, there can't possibly be a shtick or a philosophy really. I mean, there is, I guess, underlying, but I'm not even really thinking about it. I pressed Matt for an example here because I felt like he was being a little vague. And that's when he talked about rice. Like if I see someone who's, you know, to go back to the same example, like eating, they eat you know, a fair number of grains and they're almost all processed. I'll say, what, you like rice? Brown rice is an acquired taste. Trust me, I made the switch. It's doable. Like, let's try so let's try brown rice instead of white. Uh, that's what I'll do with you. Now, I just want to point out that Matt is not arguing here that white rice is bad. Rather, he's just giving an example of how he might, based on someone's goals and preferences, help them move toward eating foods that are less processed. But he also brings up this idea to sort of counterbalance any drive towards perfectionism. I think it's just uh, salutary to people to understand that there's such a thing as good enough. Like, first of all, who's most likely to eat a whole sleeve of cookies? Someone who eats one cookie a day or someone who tries their damnedest to never eat a cookie? So like aiming toward perfect is already, you're already in trouble. It's like, and first of all, if you can define perfect, in terms of diet, you're lacking a little bit of that humility that we <laughs> that came up earlier in our conversation. So on, on the one hand, I, I encourage people to understand that there is such a thing as good enough. On the other hand, 
I also, at the same time, encourage people to understand diet as a process. You know, I talk to a lot of elite athletes about how they eat. And it's very interesting, you know, these were part of what makes them elite is that not just that they're talented, but they're really tuned into their bodies. And if, if you take, a, you know, a, a 35 year old elite marathoner and you, and you ask, how, how do you eat now? And they tell you, and then you, then you ask, like, how did you eat seven years ago, nine years ago? And it will be different. And it will be different for specific reasons, not radically, but they're always, uh, you know, their bodies are changing and they're paying attention and, and they're changing, but they're also, you know, learning things, trying things, incorporating things, not like, like pinballing from one extreme to the other, like so many of us do. So, so those two things, there's such a thing as good enough, but the journey is never complete and the journey can be fun. You know, if you look at it as kind of an exploration, you know, sort of discovering yourself, um, it's just a way of, you know, walking through life. Brian St. Pierre, director of nutrition for Precision Nutrition, often describes the ideal starting point for most people the same way Matt does. I still think of it as like pretty normal eating, just with more minimally processed whole foods. So let's pause there. If you've listened to all three parts of this series, you'll notice that no matter who I talk to, no matter how far apart their ideas seem, they all place a real primacy on eating fewer highly processed foods and eating more foods that are close to their natural state. So maybe that's what most people should be working harder at. But when you've been in the field long enough, you see like people in, in all domains of the fitness industry or in the nutrition industry, whether it's whole foods, plant-based or vegetarian or carnivore, like there are people trying to proselyze from all corners. So if it's, if they're all seeing tremendous results from all of these vastly different approaches, that tells me that it's not the specific approach that's successful, right? It might be for that individual person, but in general, like there are some underlying elements at play that are helping all of these people on vastly different eating routines to be successful. If we think back to episode one, the purple states concept, and look for what these eating patterns share in common. We know that regardless, there's still a minimal amount of protein, right? That needs to be consumed and growing evidence that the believed minimum that's been posed for a long time is actually not even, not even enough, particularly if you're active and exercising. So we know that protein is key for a whole host of things, for you know, helping you with your hunger and satiety, for regeneration and recovery, for hormone production, I mean, you name it, immune health. So protein is a key piece, no matter what, whether you're low carb or low fat, especially if you're fully plant-based, like you gotta make sure you're getting in sources of lysine, so like beans, right? So if you're not aware of or being coached on executing this well, it can go poorly. But if you're doing it well, getting enough protein is, is very viable but it's also key to it, it being successful. It's, it's key to, you know, low carb being successful. It's key to a whole host of things. From there, I mean, I'd say virtually every successful approach emphasizes minimally processed whole foods and de-emphasizes highly processed foods, right? I don't know of too many successful approaches uh, long-term that are emphasizing highly processed ones. So minimally processed whole foods. Now, I mean, I would generally say most approaches emphasize vegetables, right? Get in plenty of veggies or and leave in some fruits, but at least get in plenty of vegetables in particular. I mean, I think those are, when it comes to a like nutritional rules perspective, I mean, I think those are probably 
the biggest three that come to mind that cross over virtually any approach. And then, you know, I think there are some smaller pieces like that, like, oh, everyone needs some certain amount of particular fats. But do I ascribe a certain amount of particular fats to being like an underlying reason why all these things are successful? Probably not. I think I would ascribe more to the minimally processed and to plenty of protein and plenty of plant foods. So I wondered, why are people always looking for something more? Part of it, I imagine, is some level of like disbelief that it can be, quote unquote, like so simple. You know, when everyone else, all these other experts with PhDs and, and books are saying, no, you got to do, you know, intermittent fasting or you got to do keto or you got to do carnivore. You have to do. And I think that's my big struggle with it is like you don't have to do any of those things, but you can do any of those things. Now, Brian thinks we get into this kind of situation because of perverse incentives on both sides. First, the famous diet doctors have a lot to gain when they are contrarian or come up with something different. When you see other people in the industry who push certain narratives, because it leads to a certain agenda for them, right? You talk about an incentive structure. Well, having a novel or seemingly novel or sexy idea and there's an, there's an incentive to do that, right? Because you get to, you get a book, you get products, you get to make money. Being middle of the road, you know, <laughs> selling a book about eating fruits and vegetables and plenty of protein is probably not going to uh, be a big seller. And on the consumer side... I think part of it is it doesn't sound different enough from stuff they've already heard. And it's like, oh, I've heard that before and I'm still not where I want to be. In my opinion, there's a disconnect between what you know and what you do. It's about turning what you already know, oftentimes, into what you reliably do, right? The difference, I think, between me and, like, say, someone who's looking for, for a solution is I'm already doing those, like, normal but slightly better things on just a regular, reliable basis. And if, if we could help people do that, to me, that solves it. Dr. Katz makes this really interesting point. The places around the world where people benefit the most from diet, there is no news about diet. No news. You should not need another diet book, ours or anybody else's. If you need a diet book, that is your problem. Because where diet does the most good, nobody is waiting for somebody to come along and tell them how to eat. They eat the way their grandparents and great-grandparents and their grandparents ate. It's a traditional diet. Another thing about traditional diets is that they're easy to follow because they recognize each person's unique history preferences and cultural context. That's the other thing, like agnostic healthy eating. Remember, I describe it as a, a high, high quality version of normal. Like it ain't hard, you know, you just like, again, like that's why I say, you know, tweak, don't overhaul. Like let's start with where you are now. Yet people often look for solutions that are radical and sometimes magical. Have you ever knocked on wood? You know, if you say something that seems to tempt the fates, like, despite this COVID pandemic raging on, our whole family is still in good health. Then you knock on wood to, I guess, ward off the fates from delivering COVID to your family. Well, knocking on wood is one of the most common examples in Western culture of what's called magical thinking. And it's actually kind of a two for one in the magical thinking game. First, it implies that you merely saying something positive with your words could trigger the universe to deliver bad fortune. So that's the first piece of magic. And second, it suggests that physically knocking on a wooden object could protect you from such a thing happening. So that's the second piece of magic. 
Now, in the early 1990s, scientists started getting really interested in magical thinking, considering how to define it and what conditions make it more likely. In one study, they even measured knocking on wood. About 100 students visited Dr. Gioria Keenan's research lab at Tel Aviv University, and they were asked a series of questions designed to elicit one of those kind of knock-on-wood moments. Uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll tie this back to nutrition in a minute. For now, let's talk more about Dr. Keenan's study. Now, some students came in on a normal day, considered a low-stress condition, and others came in 30 minutes before a scheduled exam, which was considered high-stress. Also, students were assessed using something called the Desirability for Control Scale. So this is a questionnaire which helps describe the extent to which someone feels the need to control people or decisions or events in their environment versus just going with the flow or following others. It turns out that both high stress conditions and a high desire for control lead to more superstitious behavior, so more knocks on the wooden table. A poll put together by the television show 60 Minutes showed that although only two out of every 10 Americans say they are quote-unquote somewhat or quote-unquote very superstitious, six out of 10 Americans knock on wood to prevent unwanted things from happening. But people don't just turn to superstitions or magical thinking or magical rituals in low-stakes situations. For example, Dr. Eric Tenkerang of Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, studied 800 Ghanaians during the 2016 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Now, the outbreak was massive and had a 50% fatality rate. And although most people had access to good, modern, scientific thinking on the virus and could answer questions about it accurately, a huge percentage of people started this practice of praying over hot salt water, drinking some, and then bathing in it. You see, they believe this magical ritual to be an effective vaccine against Ebola, even though doctors and scientists continually debunk the myth. Another study with Dr. Keenan, the guy who did the knock on wood study, found that during the Gulf War, Israelis in cities at higher risk of Scud missile attacks were more likely to do superstitious things like stepping into a bomb shelter with their right foot first versus their left foot. Bottom line, when there's a sense of uncertainty, maybe even danger, when there's stress, when there's little access to logical or scientific consensus, people look to magic as they grasp for control. Which is maybe why many of us gloss over ideas like agnostic healthy eating, which we've been talking about in this episode. Like, sure, unprocessed foods in enough protein, fruits and veggies, don't eat too much. But if I could just nail down the perfect ratio of saturated to unsaturated fats, if I could just get my blood ketones in the right range, if I could just find the right dose of curcumin or resveratrol, if I could just sip this special amino acid drink during workouts, if I could just get rid of all animal foods or all vegetable foods or all carbs or all fats, then I'll feel some sense of control, some sense of doing the right thing, some sense of being okay.
Okay, I'm gonna take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition. While it might feel weird to have another set of nutrition ideas thrown into the mix of this episode, I wanna let you know that Precision Nutrition is different. Their nutrition paradigm is completely agnostic. Whether you're plant-based or keto or high-carb or carnivore, they can help. But you don't even need to care about the name diets for Precision Nutrition to help. That's because they offer something more, something they call deep health. Now, deep health is defined as a balanced diet of fresh whole foods, sufficient exercise combined with genuine rest, access to clean air and clean water, real human connection and sincere emotional expression, purpose, joy, and using your life in the service of them. So it's not just about how people eat, although that's part of it. It's also about how they move, think, respond, solve problems, and exist in the world around them. If that sounds deep, well, that's the point. And it's what's made them the biggest nutrition coaching, education, and software company in the world. If you'd like to learn more about Precision Nutrition, including their number one rated nutrition certification program, Plus, get some incredible free resources to help you eat better, transform your health, maybe even help others do the same. Please visit www.precisionnutrition.com backslash JB, my initials. Free stuff awaits, plus early access to PN's programs and a nice discount. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com backslash JB. All right, back to the show. It's not generally about the food. It's, people aren't eating ice cream at night and drinking wine while they're watching a movie because they think, man, this is so awesome for me. I'm going to be so jacked when I wake up. Like No one is sitting there telling themselves this story that what they're doing is beneficial. People eat for a whole host of reasons other than I want to be ripped, even if I want to live a long and healthy life. Right? That's like a long, distant way off. And, you know, we use nutrition or we use food to manage a whole bunch of other things, to solve all kinds of other problems, to cope with stress or shame or guilt, or right now to help cope with the unknown, right? Like, am I going to be on lockdown again? Am I going to be able to see my, my parents at Thanksgiving? Like, oh, this is, this is unnerving. I'm going to have an extra glass of wine, you know, like, but no one's doing that thinking, man, this is like super good for me, but it's making me feel better right now. So I think part of the issue is, isn't knowledge. The issue is helping people develop other skills that allow them to put that knowledge into work. While most people arguing about nutrition talk a lot about the food, the proteins, the carbs, the fats, or the plants and the animals, Dr. Stephen Guinet, biochemist, neuroscientist, and author of The Hungry Brain, often places his focus elsewhere, on our eating behaviors. Because for most of us, eating too much is a bigger problem than not getting our macronutrient ratios just right. We just are not fully conscious, rational beings. Like, that's not how the brain is set up. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in the brain that is beyond our conscious awareness. And that stuff, you know, at the lowest level is just like the brain, you know, regulating your heart rate and your breathing rate and your blood pressure and temperature and like all this stuff that's completely non-conscious. But your brain does a lot of other stuff too. Like it affects your eating behavior in a lot of ways. 
I think your brain can play some pretty big tricks on you, particularly when it comes to food intake, in terms of you not really being fully aware of how much you're eating. And again, it's not a matter of blame. It's not a matter of of finger wagging, but it is just empirically true when you do the studies that people tend to eat more than they think they're eating when they're on weight loss diets. This has been shown over and over and over and over again. So, I mean, you don't need to blame yourself. You just need to understand that we have these fallible, ancient, you know, cobbled together brains that have a bunch of stuff going on. Some of that stuff is not really doing what you want it to be doing. It's kind of working against you. That's not your fault. It's just a fact. We're operating with brain systems that evolved for a different world. These are systems that evolved to promote uh, survival and reproductive success a long time ago in a hunter-gatherer environment. So, you know, we have these brain systems that are optimized for a situation that we're no longer in. And so you have a lot of stuff that's going on in your brain. I mean, I wish I had a brain that allowed me to focus uh, without distraction for as long as I want to work in a day. That's not the brain I have. That's not the brain anybody has because that is not the kind of brain that promoted survival and reproduction in, in the time of our distant ancestors. It's just the thing I inherited, this brain that's not perfectly optimized for 2020. And it's not optimized for work productivity. It's not optimized for rationality. It's not optimized for kindness. It's not optimized for eating behavior and body fatness. There are all these things we're having to struggle against. Going back to my earlier advice, eat food, not too much, and a satisfying mix of plants and animals, it appears that the second one is the biggest challenge because it's the one most beyond our conscious control. What I like to do is kind of create a conceptual framework to help people think through some of those issues and then talk about what issues flow from that conceptual framework um, in terms of practical actions. Um, So the conceptual framework is basically what we were just talking about, that we have this brain that does a lot of things that are beyond our conscious awareness, like you don't choose how much appetite you have. You don't choose how seductive a food is to you. Those are just things that your brain generates and that you experience. But those things are not, again, our brains aren't just floating in in a jar. Those are things that interact with our environment. So they can be modified. So essentially you have two options that you could use. You could say, well, I don't really care about all this stuff. I'm just going to impose my iron will on my eating behavior. So even though I'm hungry, even though I'm really tempted by this delicious food, even though there's a pile of Hershey Kisses right in front of me, I'm just going to have an iron will and I'm not going to respond to any of this and I'm going to reduce my my calorie intake. And the truth is, if you can pull it off, that works. But it's just really hard to pull off because that's not how the brain is set up to operate it's not the natural way of interacting with food. The natural way for a human to interact with food is we eat when we feel like eating, either we're hungry or it's the right time or we're tempted, and then we stop when we feel full. 
it's a very intuitive process. And that's the natural, typical way of interacting with food for a human. That's the way we've always been doing it for, you know, millions of years. And that is the way that these systems were set up to operate. And so you can either fight all of that stuff. It's really powerful. It's going to fight back. It's not going to be easy. And you'll probably fail. I'm hoping the second alternative has a more hopeful prognosis. So what is it? You can change the signals that those systems are receiving. And you can try to recruit all that stuff to your side and get it to stop opposing you and to help you in your in your goals. And so that's kind of the framework for me is like what signals instead of trying to just kind of stuff down all these impulses, all these brain systems that are giving us a hard time, how can we change the information we're feeding them and, and help recruit them to our own side? And so there are a few ways that you can do that. And, you know, I, I cover more of these in my book, but I'll just cut, touch on a couple of important ones. Um, and one of the most important is to modify your food environment. So your brain is constantly scanning your environment for things that it likes. And if it sees something like uh, soda on the counter or, you know, a, a box of pizza and you can smell it and you can see it and all those signals are going to your brain. We didn't talk about dopamine, but that gets your dopamine spiking. Suddenly you are going to have an urge to eat those things and it's going to be strong. Maybe even if you were previously full, suddenly you feel hungry, you feel tempted when you see that box of pizza. And so don't give your brain those stimuli. If you can have a clean food environment or a supportive food environment is what I is is the way I'd like to phrase it, where you're not constantly giving your brain these visual and these scent cues that are triggering your dopamine spike and are creating these urges to consume, you're going to make things a lot easier for yourself. So you're you're exerting a little bit of willpower now cleaning your food environment in order to not have to use willpower later. And um, so I think food environment is very, very important. And that feeds into this, um, this reward system that, that regulates food seductiveness and our motivational drive to eat. So that's Dr. Guianet's first tip for not eating too much. Creating a food environment that's less likely to tempt you to eat when you'd prefer not to. Another thing is to um, change how your brain perceives satiety, fullness. So again, we have in, in this normal intuitive relationship we have with food, the amount of food that we eat at a sitting is determined by the amount it takes to till we reach that fullness, right? That sensation of fullness. But what is that determined by? Well, it's determined by circuits in your brain that are receiving information from your digestive tract and then deciding whether you've had enough to generate that sensation. And so it turns out that process can be manipulated. It's not inextricably linked to the number of calories that you eat. And so if you choose certain types of foods over others, you can actually get that sensation that makes you intuitively want to stop your meal while having eaten fewer calories. And so calorie density, in other words, the number of calories per gram or volume of food has a strong impact on that. So more calorie dense foods are foods that have less water and less fiber. 
and those are less filling per calorie. So this is um, counterintuitive to people because they think, well, when I eat cake or bacon or whatever, I feel really full. And that is true. But when you take account for the number of calories that you consumed, you're actually experiencing less fullness per calorie that you consumed. And so if you eat something that's less calorie dense, like a bowl of oatmeal is mostly water, an apple is mostly water, any kind of fresh meat or fish, egg, mostly water. So when you consume those types of foods, you're going to experience more satiety or fullness per unit calorie, and you will push away from the table feeling just as satisfied, but having eaten fewer calories. Um, and so calorie density, uh, protein, the more protein you eat in a meal, the uh, more satiety per calorie you experience, higher fiber, more satiety. And that's Dr. Guillenay's second tip for not eating too much, including more foods that produce a higher level of satiety. And the last one is palatability or pleasure of eating. So basically, the better your food tastes, the more calories it takes for you to feel full. So if a food tastes really good, that's basically your brain implicitly valuing the things that that food contains. Your brain kind of cuts loose and, and, and uh, turns off the brakes and lets you eat more of that food before you feel full. And so foods that taste really, really good, you know, things like cake or fries or that sort of thing, it will take more of that food for you to get to the point of feeling full. And so that doesn't mean you have to just eat food that tastes bad. But I think, I think the concept I like to use here is simple, satisfying foods. So there are foods that we can eat that are not super seductive. They're not chocolate. They're not cake. They're not French fries. They're not bacon. But they still you know, taste good to us and leave us feeling satisfied. Things like a simple uh, cut of meat that's been simply cooked or a piece of fresh fruit, you know, those types of foods are the kinds of foods that you can eat and feel satisfied without feeling overly tempted and going overboard. And that's his third tip for not eating too much. Eating more of the foods you find satisfying and a bit less of the foods that you find too seductive. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. Uh, I may have given the impression that this is more complicated than it really is. Um, if you look at the types of foods that have a higher satiety index, in other words, higher satiety per calorie, it's pretty much all simple, unrefined foods. So, and all the ones that create little satiety per calorie are pretty much all refined, palatable foods like processed foods. Hmm. Have I heard this somewhere before? So... If you just want a rule of thumb on how to do this, just eat simple unprocessed foods and don't add a lot of fat to it. Don't add a lot of sugars or refined starches to it. And you're going to be largely doing what I just described. Yet eating should probably never be viewed as a biological exercise that's devoid of pleasure. I really like how Brian St. Pierre puts this into context. And so like when you ask like, what's my dietary philosophy and I'm at a, a, you know, around a campfire, you know, it's, well, I would say it's um, emphasizing 
minimally processed whole foods, but finding that balance between like the life you want to lead and let's say like whatever the outcome is you want to have, whether it's a fitness goal or a aesthetic goal or just like your health and longevity, or maybe it's a combination of all of those things. How far do you want to push that relative to, hey, you want to sit and have some beers around a fire pit. You want to have pizza with your kids. You want to do X, Y, and Z, right? How do we find the middle ground between those things? So my dietary philosophy is helping people find the middle ground between those two, those two ends, right? The life you want to lead, the outcomes you want to have. Okay, where can we meet to find the intake that's going to help you do, accomplish all of those things in a safe, like desirable way? Of course, you can always find people who view health as primarily a biochemical outcome. Dr. Paul Saladino, who appeared in episodes one and two, seems to trend in this direction. I do not use food as entertainment. And I think that if humans want to have optimal health, you have to do your own quality of life equation. And if you choose to make food your highest quality of life and you're a quote foodie or you use food as entertainment, you must also admit and accept that you will not optimize your health in every way, shape, and form. And that is fine. That is your own reality, and that is equally valid to mine. But personally, because of the work that I do and what I am most passionate about, food is not entertainment. This is not to say that I don't eat a lot of food that I really enjoy, but I don't use food as entertainment. And I think that that is a, that is a goal, that is an ideal that will really stymie and get in the way of optimal health as a human. Yet, as Brian St. Pierre reminds us, one of the things that occurs to me when people talk about health is they don't always have a great definition of what what is health. Like, what does that even mean to you? Right? For a lot of people, it's just physical health. Oh, I'm I, you know, my blood work is better, or I feel like I have more energy. It's usually a lot of these like physical markers of their health. But there are many other facets or dimensions of health to consider. And I think if if we can get people to think along those lines and see, okay how my actions contribute or pull away from or diminish these other dimensions of my health, they might think a little bit differently about their choices they're going to make. These other dimensions include your mental and emotional health, right? Like your, your environmental health, your spiritual or your um, existential health, right? Your social relational health. So here's an example. If suddenly eating keto helps you lose weight and your physical health improves, but now you don't go out with your friends, because they eat differently than you, right? It has a massive impact on your social relational health or, you know, your family or your children or whatever the case might be, right? Which then has impacts on your mental and emotional health because now you don't have a, a social connection and an outlet. So you have to consider, and it may be, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you find a tribe of people who eat this way and now you've got a new community that you're with, right? So there can be benefits. That's where something like CrossFit was so successful. It created camaraderie, right? It created this community so people were not only excited to go exercise and improve their physical health, it was contributing to their social relational health, which was then also contributing to their mental and emotional health. So it's this full circle, this web, I think we have to keep in mind. It's incredibly important to also consider those other dimensions of health because that's a big reason why people end up backsliding in their approach because it, whatever they chose to do only contributed to one aspect and maybe even drew away from other aspects. And when you start thinking about your actions in that full web, you might make different decisions because they contribute to other areas that'll then help you sustain whatever it is you're doing. If someone were to study my work on nutrition, they'd likely call me a centrist. Where do I fall on the plants versus animals spectrum? 
firmly in the middle. Half my diet is plants, so fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, and lentils, and the other half is animals, meat, and organs. Where do I fall on the macronutrient spectrum? In the middle again. I probably get around one-third of my calories from protein, one-third from carbs, and one-third from fats. Now, I do avoid certain foods because of allergies or intolerances, which I think is important for everyone. Dairy, in my case, I have lactose intolerance and a milk protein allergy, so I just don't eat any dairy. I also avoid certain fruits and vegetables, and there are just a few that upset my stomach. And soy and wheat, I don't know what's going on there, but I seem to get an immune response that causes excess mucus production and congestion. So I avoid those or minimize them. But here's the thing. I don't recommend everyone else avoid these things because I personally don't tolerate them well. I think each person has to adjust their food selections to fit their own bodies. Which again, if you think about it from a theoretical point of view, seeing what's out there in the marketplace of ideas, this is moderate. So a lot of people wonder how well I do sharing a meal with those who have more extreme views. To this end, Dr. Paul Saladino and I did a little thought experiment together. So we imagined him coming up to Canada to stay with me and my family, and we tried to figure out whether our eating schedules and our food selections could be compatible. First, we talked about meals. Now I structure my meals like this. I have two meals, no snacks. They're about six hours apart. Now I do something very similar. I eat two meals a day, so we could eat both our meals together every day. Next, we talked about protein. I usually eat about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. And that means I eat about one and three quarter pounds of meat per day, which is about 175 grams of protein from meat. Me too. I'm a weightlifter and I'm closer to about 200 pounds. So my protein intake would be a bit higher, about two pounds a day. But so far we're eating together twice a day and are having big helpings of protein. And then if it's a day when I'm including carbohydrates, I will either eat one of the least toxic sources of carbohydrates in my diet. I will eat honey, which I think is an ancestrally consistent, evolutionarily compatible carbohydrate or I will eat fruit seasonally. I like berries in my diet. And occasionally I will eat squash, which is a fruit. So it's a non-sweet fruit. So next to his protein, Dr. Saladina would be eating fruit or honey or squash. Doesn't happen every day, but it happens probably three to four days a week right now. For my part, I also eat squash next to my protein three or four times a week. I love butternut squash, buttercup squash, and spaghetti squash, so I usually include them in the rotation. And if it's not squash, for me, it's a big portion of cooked asparagus, sugar snap peas, cauliflower, broccoli, parsnips, or cabbage. Those are some of my favorites. And next to that, I usually have a big bowl of salad, like really big, with lettuce, coleslaw mix, carrots, avocado, olives, pickles, and homemade dressing, which is usually olive oil, vinegar, lemon juice, Italian seasoning, and sea salt. So this is where we'd start to depart. Dr. Saladino would have animal protein plus squash and berries, where I may have animal protein plus squash and a big salad filled with vegetables that I tolerate and enjoy. We'd both be drinking water, and the only other difference is that on days where I have a big weight training session, I'll include a dessert after one of my meals. 
That dessert usually contains a half pint of dairy-free ice cream, a handful of raw mixed nuts, some frozen berries or cherries or bananas, a couple squares of 99% chocolate, some raw almond or cashew butter, and some sea salt. Now, when I asked Dr. Saladino if he'd share this dessert with me, nope. Which is fine, and ideology aside, reasonable. With a higher body size and likely a higher weekly exercise volume, I need the extra calories, and he probably doesn't. So, if you were a fly on the wall at my house and Dr. Saladino was here, it's clear that we wouldn't have an irreconcilable time. We'd eat all our meals together, we'd prepare them out on the grill together, I'd just need to spend a few extra minutes preparing my salad and my desserts. And just so you know, I have also shared meals with Dr. Katz. We've enjoyed fruits, veggies, nuts, seeds, beans, and lentils together. Of course, he added a helping of whole grains to his plate, whereas I added animal protein to mine. This is one of the reasons I enjoy eating a mixed diet. It's easier to meet my nutrition needs, that's for sure. It supports my health goals, and I can sit down and share a meal with almost anyone, which is especially important at home. With our four young children, there are six of us living together. And this way of eating allows us to honor each of our own food preferences while still sharing meals. But let's be clear, I'm not arguing that you should value the same things I do. What I'm arguing is that dietary debates, even though they parade around as health debates, are often about personal values. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'll just ask if you ever approach me about it, especially on the internet, to remember this advice from Brian St. Pierre. With the internet today, those conversations spill over into public domain in ways that aren't actually helpful because most people don't have the context or the training to have that kind of conversation. So it always brings me back to, I always think of it, it's actually a slightly different version of the quote. Have you, have you seen the movie Wonder? Yeah, so there's like David Diggs, who's um, in, in Hamilton, that's what he's famous for, but he plays the teacher and he has this quote where he talks about, if you have to choose between being kind or being right, like choose kind. And I have a slightly different version of this. If you have to choose between being right or being helpful, choose helpful. Being right and winning, but it doesn't actually help the person move forward or make better decisions. Like, what did you actually accomplish? You know, so yeah, we had a, we, we got to the truth and no one was any better for it. So let's say you're a coach and you're talking to a client, like winning an argument about why keto doesn't work and, you know, the insulin isn't the, you know, the evil entity it's been described to be. If they were really interested in this and they're finding it working for them, now you're not only maybe maybe discouraging them from doing what's working for them, or they're going to double down on it because they're like, man, this this ass clown doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, this is working for me. Now you're losing that social relational element there. And if they enjoy eating that way and it's contributing to that web of health, that deep health that I was talking about, like it's it's causing increases in multiple dimensions then it doesn't fundamentally matter so much exactly why it's working. Now, if they start making all kinds of, of poor or crazy decisions based on that false premise, that's a different conversation. You're, you're worried about their safety, but you still have to do it, have that conversation gently and with the goal of helping them versus like winning. So to me, you have to choose between being right and being helpful and working with everyday people. I choose helpful.
before we end, I want to make sure you don't miss out on something. Editing this show was sad for me because I did in-depth interviews with each of the guests, most of them lasting 90 minutes or more, and we had to whittle them down, which means a lot of insights were left on the cutting room floor. However, we're making those full interviews available right now for you totally free at the Dr. John Berardi Show website. These interviews really are treasure troves of information. And to access them, as well as a transcript of this main episode you just listened to, pop over to www.drjohnberardishow.com. Also, one more thing. If you like what we're doing with the show, please consider reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Clicking that little subscribe button on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to us also makes a difference. So, reviewing and subscribing, it helps a lot. Thanks for considering. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, and the team at Sound On Studio who take care of our sound management, design, and editing. You can learn more about them at soundonsoundoff.com. And thanks to you for listening.